Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, innovators, and some people with just fascinating stories. Today, we're talking with retired judge and legal analyst, Judge Gail Williams Byers. We're going to translate some of the issues surrounding gag orders in court cases, what they mean, and how they work. This episode is not intended for lawyers, but instead for the average person who's trying to follow all of the current legal proceedings in various courts. Judge, at this time where we have so many trials going on uh, involving former President Trump and and others, there's a lot of terminology that gets thrown around that, that I don't think the general public totally understands. And one of the things that has caught public attention uh, lately is the term gag order. Uh, so let's break that down. What would you say a gag order is, who issues it, and who is it uh, directed towards? Well, Tom, simply put, um, a gag order, or generally any order that comes from the court is going to be issued by the judge or the hearing officer. So if there's a magistrate or um, whomever is the jurist in charge, in this instance, it's the judge, Judge Ingeron, in um, in the New York case. And a gag order, just very simply, is an order that the court issues to an individual, um, to a party, or maybe to several people in the court that limits their ability to talk about the court case as it's going on. So it could be directed at one person. It could be directed at a few people or specific people. It could be directed at everyone. And usually the judge takes certain things into consideration when issuing those orders, like, you know, how far it should go, how, how much it should limit what they can say and to whom they can say it. Um, and, those orders are expected to be followed. But pretty simply put, these are just orders that say what you can tell the public and what you can't say while the case is going on. So what if someone violates blatantly a, a gag order? What happens then? Well, if there is a violation or disobeying of the court's order, so you have you know, maybe one or more people who decide that, you know, maybe that order is more of a suggestion than a requirement. Um, the court has a lot of options available to it. 
And so they usually work in stages or in steps with the court perhaps imposing the least um, restrictive or the least harsh option so as to maybe give the people an opportunity to adjust to what the court's expectations are. So it can be something that can start with simply reminding them. We call these admonishments or admonitions, but reminding them that, hey, I told you, you can't say or do something. And if you do it again, I'm going to have to respond more seriously. If you can think of it sort of in a sense of how parents tend to treat their children, right? If you give your child an instruction or if you tell them not to do something, and if they do it anyway, you may first remind them of what you instructed them to do before putting them on punishment or before taking something away. And so the court can start with a reminder and that reminder can go to maybe a second or third reminder. They could impose a fine or a, a monetary penalty. So make you pay money if you if the orders continue to be violated. And ultimately they could um, get to the point where they can impose a term of incarceration or they can put you in jail for constantly violating the court's order if they find that you just or the people or the person has no interest at all in following it. What I would say also in caution is everyone is governed by their own behavior. So if a court were to issue a gag order to multiple people in the courtroom and one person violates one day, but a different person violates another day, the court is probably not likely to impose or to issue the most harsh response to the second person since it's probably their first time violating. So everyone's kind of treated in their own vein or in their own right. But if the same person keeps doing the same behavior over and over again, then it kind of gets potentially worse and worse for them each time they disobey the court's order. Okay, I want to get into some other definitions now. And uh, you and I have talked, Judge Gale, and and we think that the, the media, I think the media, uh, news media, is not doing a very good job of interpreting what's going on in all of these Trump trials. Uh, it, it seems like... It, my point of view is the media is trying to report these like sporting events, <laughs> you know, who's, who's ahead, who's winning, you know, what game plan is being, being operated. What's the defense? What's the, 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 uh, prosecution or would be the offense. Yeah. It, 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 and that I don't think serves the public. So what, I want to do with this series, and, and you and I are going to talk uh, several times uh, over the next several months, uh, is try to, to break these things down into uh, language that the average person can understand, uh, that the average person knows what what's going on. So one of the things that I think is confusing, and I really would like for you to uh, clear this up if, if you could, is the difference between a gag order and a restraining order. We, we've heard media interchange those two things. 
there's a restraining order against uh, former President Trump. There's a gag order against former President Trump. Are they the same or are they different? My judicial interpretation is that they're a little bit different, but I want to hear yours. So I want to start by saying I agree with everything you've said. I don't believe that uh, the media has done the best job it could in kind of just educating the public about the basics of what they're hearing, what they're seeing, what they're ingesting, right? They hear all these legal terms kind of thrown around. And if you're not trained or law trained, this may be all a foreign language to you. And so, yes, I do agree with you that when you kind of interchange legal terms that can sometimes seem similar but are not in practice, I think what you do is you confuse the audience even more. And so you've you've rightly compared two what we think are two very basic terms, right? Gag order versus restraining order. And these are not the same. And if you think of them kind of from their native um, native terms, you can kind of understand why. I encourage the audience, if you're thinking of a gag order, think about you know what you gag with, right? Usually it's your mouth. And so the order is designed to control your mouth. It's designed to control what you say and who you say it to. A restraint, and that that goes to social media as well. Your your voice, yes, your mouth, your, your yes, voice, your mouth, your voice. How you um, you know, how you display information, and and you're absolutely right because nowadays you can say a lot of things without ever moving your mouth, but you can have a verified account on you know, X, formerly Twitter or any other platform where others clearly interpret the messages from those accounts to be what you are saying or the intent of your words or what you are displaying. So it's not, you know, there's just the traditional coming out and, and having a conversation or even doing a press conference, but you're absolutely right. It is anything that you convey, you know, with your words um, that's intended to be attributed or made, you know, responsible to you in violation of or, you know, in contradiction of the court's order to not say anything while that case is going on. Conversely, or alternatively, when you think of a restraining order, a restraining order is designed to actually keep you from carrying out certain actions physically. And so you can be restrained or prohibited from going to a certain place, or you can be restrained or prohibited from attending certain events or appearing in certain places. So when you think of restraining orders, in my mind, I tend to think more so of the actions that are um, that limit someone um, or um, dictate to someone what they can and cannot do kind of physically versus what they can and cannot say or convey verbally or in writing. 
Does that make sense? Let, 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 let me break that down even further with a couple of examples and see if you agree. Uh, a restraining order is a court order, as you said, to, to either do something or rest refrain from doing something. Uh, but it's an action item. It, it's like, let's say there was this 200-year-old tree, if one that could be possible, and somebody was going to cut it down. There may be a restraining order in court saying, don't cut that tree down. We prohibit you from cutting that tree down. Maybe not forever, but until we decide the case, until we hear all the evidence, exactly. until, we, until we make a judicial determination whether or not it's appropriate for you to cut down that tree. If you go ahead and cut down the tree... You know, that, that the case is over. Correct. You know? and, and the harm <laughs> is so that you can't repair it. It's ir what is termed in law irreparable, irreparable harm. harm. And we hear that term all the time. But my tree example is, is an example of that. You cut down a 200-year-old tree, it's done. You're, you know, there's nothing left. Exactly. But a, but a restraining order also can be to limit people. Uh, we just had the UAW strike against the, the big three automakers. Uh, a restraining order could have been issued by a court limiting, for example, the number of picketers at a particular site so that there wouldn't be a mob of people, but only a certain number of people. Or it may be an order that you can only pick it within X number of feet or yards from a particular building. Precisely. Uh, In fact, Tom, that's something that we frequently see maybe at polling sites on election day, right? Precisely. Is you yes. can only come to a certain um, footage between the polling site and the actual location. That is a form of a restraining order that says beyond this point, you cannot do something or you can do it up to this particular point. So that's the difference between a gag order and a restraining order. Now let's circle back and just concentrate on gag orders because we've got gag orders <laughs> running out of our ears here. <laughs> Uh, in, in all of these Trump cases. Let me tell the, the general public out here, gag orders are discouraged in the law. And what I mean by that is that uh, higher courts, appellate courts, state supreme courts, U.S. supreme courts, U.S. courts, circuit courts of appeals, higher courts than trial courts, have said if you restrain somebody's speech in a case, you have to do so in a very limited manner but we discourage you from doing it, period. But if you do do it, you have to do it in an extremely limited manner. Now, let's, let's look. First of all, Gail, do you agree with that definition? I absolutely agree uh, with that definition, but I also absolutely agree with the interpretation of all of those court decisions that say, Judges, please use a gag order as a last resort and not a first. 
Right. So so you can tell everybody, hey, we want this to be a fair trial. We we accept that you're all adults. You're going to exercise good judgment. You're not going to say anything in the public that's going to intimidate a witness. Right. You're going to mind your manners. Gonna, and you're going to be respectful. Prejudice. You're 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 all going to behave yeah. in a, in a civil way before you uh, before this case gets tried, and when this case gets tried. Until the final outcome, so that that's the idea that these have to be very very limited. Now let's let's break down a couple of these that that we hear going on specifically. Uh, Judge Arthur Engeron, uh in the uh, Superior Court of or the Supreme Court in New York. Uh, it, it is trying the Trump fraud case. First of all, his gag order was against former President Trump, basically saying you cannot show pictures or threaten or disparage my staff, my court staff, period. Uh, you can't do it on social media. You can't do it in your press conferences. You can't do it. Now, what you can do, what I will allow you to do, is you can go after the uh, Attorney General, uh, Letitia James. You can go after her because she's an elected official. You can go after me because I'm the judge. You can go after me if you want. may not be a great idea, but you can you can do that. But what you can't do is attack my staff because you're, you're bringing them in potential of harm's way. That was the first order. And it was limited to President Trump. Am I correct on that? And yes, not only are you correct, I want to say I think Judge Ingeron was very smart in how he kind of narrowly tailored or narrowly wrote this order, just as you described it. Um, first, judges are, you know, considered to be, you know, kind of the final voice in the courtroom. And what he said is, listen, I'm, I'm basically an armadillo, right? I've got thick skin. I've got this extra, you know, shell of armor. You can say whatever you want about me because I wasn't drafted to be a judge. I asked to be a judge either one way or another. And the same for the attorney general, um, A.G. James. She wasn't drafted. She asked the people in this jurisdiction to have faith in her, and they then elected her for office because she wanted this. So we kind of chose to be here, but the staff didn't. They are here because they work at the pleasure of the judge. They are here because they're working here because I said so, or I want them to be a part of this team. And they should not be the object of your um, discomfort or your anger or your ire. And so he was very careful to say, I, I don't really care what you say about me or the other elected officials, but I do care what you say about other people that are required to come here and work. And they didn't ask to become kind of the you know, the target of your distrust of the system. Okay, so so that happened, and then there was a, a uh, according to the judge, 
a breach of that gag order or a violation of that gag order, and he fined uh, former President Trump $5,000. Now, everybody probably looked at that and went, what? That's not even pocket change. <laughs> Launch uh, money. <laughs> to this guy, reg- regardless of uh, <laughs> how much perhaps fraud there was, that's not even pocket change. What? Wh- why did you do that? There was another alleged violation, and this time it was a little bit different because the the judge put President Trump, former President Trump, on the stand and asked him questions again with various statements that the former president made against the judge's law clerk, uh, and the. President Trump testified very briefly upon the order of the judge. The judge said, I don't think you're credible on on this. Yes, you were targeting her, and added another $10,000. So we've got $15,000 worth of fines, and I think the general public still is saying, uh, that's that's nothing. What, what What's going on here? Well, Tom, if you think about it, the general public, yes, may look at someone like former President Trump and say, well, $15,000 is nothing. But if you compared it to what they might experience, were they similarly situated, I would say more likely than not, the average litigant or the average person in court probably wouldn't be able to pay $15,000 in fines for not following the court's orders or the court's rules. That's more than lunch money for some people. It, it, but it, I think a lot of people out there uh, may say, well, "Why didn't you put him in jail? Why why didn't you just put him in jail if he's if he's going to continue to do that?" That's not necessarily uh, what we call in the law a summary process, something that you do immediately. There are some procedures, correct, to do that. There absolutely, are. that you have to go through. And Judge Ingeron is doing, this is almost like a a mini law school class and showing how, <laughs> yes, how to methodically walk through that, that process of, remember I was just saying earlier, kind of like how parents um, treat their children if they are not following the rules. You kind of go step by step by step. And Judge Ingeron is displaying, I think, an extraordinary amount of patience, but he's also demonstrating that this is what judges do every day. Not, And, and although, yes, there may be this broad um, expectation or um, indication by some that if this were anybody else, they would be sitting in jail by now, I would actually say they probably would not. And the reason is because Judge Ingeron is doing this step-by-step process by surely and clearly ratcheting up the penalties for every violation. So each time the rules get violated or the rules are broken, he reminds not only the litigant um, or the parties what he can do, but he's showing them, I don't have to go to the nuclear option. And if we see you're putting somebody in jail as the nuclear option, then there's an awful lot of space between 
issuing the order in the first place and even the first violation and also going to the nuclear option. And he's showing us through his court orders and his actions of how you take that one step at a time. So much so that just as you said, this isn't a a process that just kind of happens on its own. There's, There's no rule that says, you know, on the third violation, the party immediately goes to jail. That, that is not the rule. What he's saying is, I'm actually taking steps to create an actual record that shows why I'm making these decisions and what information I'm relying on to make these decisions, which is why he found it necessary to put the former president on the witness stand and to actually take testimony from him before he either decided to impose a more severe penalty And before he decided what that penalty would be, he actually provided an opportunity for explanation so that he could better understand, at least from the former president's perspective, what he was attempting to do and if that could actually be considered a violation of his order. Now, mind you, Judge Ingeron is also the person who decides whether he believes or disbelieves the information, and then makes a decision based on that. But he's going through the steps to show that this is what you do every single time. And it may feel like, oh my gosh, this is so tiring. But he's taking the steps every single time there is a violation. And I believe, as with most judges, in the hopes that this is enough to stop any further violations. Maybe if I do this, then I won't have to revisit this again because they clearly see that it's getting worse and worse and worse. So then the attorneys for former President Trump, um, they started harping on the law clerk passing notes to the judge uh, during during the case. Uh and uh, that's I, I find that sort of humorous because law clerks pass notes to judges all the time. I, I thought you heard me chuckling uh, because that's absolutely yeah, the case, as is the reverse. Judges pass notes to law clerks. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and what is contained in those notes is totally confidential. It's not a public record, uh, and but. The attorneys for the former president went went bananas over that, uh, and they'll probably file motions here in the next day or two uh, about that even further. But the judge then extended his gag order to the attorneys for the former president. Um, sort of emphasizing or as an example of what you said earlier, it can be targeted at one person, but then it can be expanded. And this time it was. Oh, absolutely. And what's also a little comedic about this is the fact that we're not talking about attorneys for whom this is their first rodeo, right? If you could probably bet donuts to dollars. They've been in many courtrooms in many jurisdictions before several different judges and have seen clerks pass notes to judges um, throughout their experiences. The, the idea that this is something so new that it seems untoward. There's, there must be something wrong with this law clerk who you don't want anyone saying anything about, but she's passing notes to the judge and those notes could very well influence the judge's decisions. And 
And so that seems to have been the argument where truthfully, these are the same attorneys who I am willing to bet just about anything that they've been in courts and they've seen this same type of symbiotic or um, working together relationship between judges and their staff and have likely never raised issues like this before. And that's why this is so funny because certainly these attorneys are not in a courtroom for their very first time, but it's also the thing that as you indicated can cause a judge to say now, you know, this isn't just the, the one party targeting a certain person on the court staff. Now I need to extend this to the attorneys because they too now perhaps want to be surrogates for their client and um, potentially go after the court staff the way that the party client can't do it. The attorneys will do it. Precisely. Now the problem though is, as you know, the attorneys could, they also have a little bit more to lose than the case because depending on you know, how many times or how they violate court orders or in what regard or how potentially disrespectful they are, they could also face disciplinary action. And that could have an impact on their ability to practice um, and lose their law license. Well, the attorneys have uh, basically shut up after that, <laughs> but they they will be filing motions, motions for mistrial, motions to dismiss and so forth. But interestingly enough, the attorneys that are going to do that for the former president uh, asked the judge to make sure that they could do that and not violate the gag order. Is it permissible for us to make these allegations in the form of a motion and legal argument to the court, and you won't find us in contempt for uh, violating your gag order? So they're walking walking a real tightrope. And it's a good Uh, idea that they asked, right? Because that could really be interpreted as just an end run around the gag order to say you you won't let us do it this way so we're going to do it through the back door and and the judge said fine you can do that now one last thing before we move to the federal court and, and that is during trump's testimony uh in the court he attacked the ag he attacked the judge using terms that uh you know just sort of make your skin crawl regardless which side you're on. I mean, the whole idea of doing this to a judge who's sitting on a case deciding your fate um, uh, is is a, a strange strategy. But if you're playing to a bigger audience, I guess that's that's a different issue. But in trial tactics, it's a strange strategy. Just quickly, why did the judge not find that a violation of the gag order. Well, if you'll remember, the gag order um, is very specific and it's really narrow. And it even goes to the point of almost inviting the um, inviting former President Trump to say whatever he wants to about the judge and Attorney General James because of the very reasons we outlined before. So there's no violation where the court specifically says, listen, I don't care if you say anything about me. I don't care what you say about the AG. These are, you know, these are elected officials and we kind of sign up for this when we take these jobs. I'm telling you, you can't talk about 
these specific folks, including the court staff. And so that I can understand why it wasn't a violation. But at the same time, I am I'm with you when I, I scratch my head about the amount of fortitude it must take for Judge Engeron to to deal with the disrespect to the court. And that's what it largely comes down to. But remember, you you have you know someone on the stand that kind of sees himself as the the bastion for the little guy. So for everybody who's ever been in the court and felt <laughs> like they were bullied by a judge, here I'm going to go in here and be a martyr, and you know I'm not going to take it. And and he actually invited me to say these things, so I'm going to say it because I can't. Uh, I'm telling you, when I sat on the bench and I had to keep my temper <laughs> or or keep my demeanor. I would, um, <laughs> under the bench, pinch the inside of my thigh <laughs> because it would cause cause me pain and it would distract me from being angry. I, I focused on the pain. And I'll tell you, if I were Judge Ingeron, I, I would have bruises all up and down both thighs. Yeah, I was going to say next you, you need your HMO card for all of the, the damage that you've imposed <laughs> to yourself because you're absolutely right. It's the kind of thing that just has you really practicing some mindfulness techniques in the moment. Exactly. But but also I want to explain to, to the, the audience out there that uh, – a gag order is really what you say outside of court. Indeed. The test the testimony that you're giving on the stand may be objectionable um, under the rules of evidence, uh, but if it's not objected to, it's permitted because you're testifying under oath in court. What a gag order goes is to what we call extrajudicial statements. That's statements outside of the court through either your voice or your social media. So that's one of the reasons why uh, Trump could get on the stand and say all that he could say uh, about the judge and, and the AG. And you're absolutely right. And I'll even go a step further because sometimes judges may find it necessary to say to an individual this order absolutely governs your behavior, right? What you can say or what you can do outside of this court, extrajudicial. But what I won't allow you to do is you also can't use some third party to do your dirty work, um, whether right. it's your attorney or it's your spouse or children. I'm going to tell your you. Your sure tail relative. Your, your Exactly, <laughs> your, exactly. And they can hold. Your drunk uncle or whatever. <laughs> right, knowing right. that, you know, well, they had just a few too many for breakfast. But what a court can say is, I can hold you responsible if I believe and I find that you've used some, somebody else to do the very thing I told you you can't do. I'm not going to let you do an end run around the court order, meaning, you know, if you can't come through the front door, you're going to try to come through the back. No, the back door is locked. So you can't come through the back door either. So let's move now to the federal case, the uh, election interference case, a federal case in Washington, D.C. The judge there, Judge Tanya Chutkin, a very experienced judge. And let me just sort of outline where we are on this. The, the judge issued, after hearing arguments from the parties, a gag order that was pretty specific to intend to 
have no intimidation of witnesses and to protect uh, uh, invectives against the prosecution and the prosecutor with two things in mind. One, the sanctity of the court process, and two, to keep from tainting a potential jury pool uh, with, with constant comments. That order was given. The Trump side objected to that order and said they were going to appeal to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Chutkin then said, okay, I will stay that order. That just means I'll put it on hold. Pause. Pause. We'll, We'll pause that order and we'll let the Court of Appeals decide whether it's good order or not. During that pause, the special prosecutor, Smith, came in and said that the the uh, attacks on the witnesses, the attacks on the prosecution, the attacks on the court system have been ratcheted up during this interim, and therefore you need to remove the stay. Take it off pause. The judge did that. The case is now going to the circuit, D.C. circuit. The attorneys for President Trump asked the D.C. circuit to put it on pause again, and they did. Now, this is quite a different order than the one by Judge Ingeron in the in the New York fraud case. One is state court, one's federal court. This is against witness intimidation and making statements that bring about threats to the, the judge, the court system, and the the prosecutor. Have I outlined that accurately, Judge? You have outlined it perfectly, about as perfect um, as Judge Chutkin's order was written, which was a beautifully written and very well thought out order. Um, she really put some thought into it, and I think that the stakes are pretty high. Um, she wasn't very um, keen, or this was no kind of knee-jerk reaction, right? This was something that she really strongly took into consideration. And by the way, it not only included the motion or the request, because that's what a motion is, is a request to the court to hear something or do something or to react or respond to something. So the the request from the state to issue this order, she also had the defense attorneys respond um, in a timely way to say, this is what they're asking for. This is what the state is asking for. The prosecutors are asking for. Do you have a response to that? Do you have some reason why I should not do this or if I should do it differently? Which I think, again, she beautifully outlined why she made the decision she made and what she relied on in making that decision. And even to the extent of, of the um, motion or the appeal to the DC circuit court after it was issued, she's been, I think, very careful about how she approaches these very touchy issues that, um, that are really unique for this type of defendant. 
in, in her uh, order that she uh, released uh, and and filed, uh, taking the stay off her stay off, uh, she was very clear. Uh, and if if audience out there haven't read that order, you should. It's not too much legalese. You can really get the 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 thrust of what she's saying. She even gives examples. Uh, she says, uh, former President Trump, you can attack President Biden all you want because you're a candidate for president. You can attack him, say that this is all his doing. You can do all of that, whether it's true or not. You can do and say anything you want. Uh, you can say anything you want about me as as the the, the judge, but what you can't do is intimidate witness, talk about witnesses that uh, might testify, and you can't attack uh, the, the, the prosecution. Uh, so she actually gave examples. Oh, the other thing that she said was that you can't, uh, I, I want to correct myself. She she protected herself, but she said, you have fair game on the Department of Justice. You can say that this is a witch hunt, that it was all political. You can do anything you want. And what she's trying to do there, folks, is that she's trying to say all this political rhetoric that you normally would hear on any campaign trail, go ahead and do it. You can do that. Mm -hmm. But if you start saying person X is uh, untrustworthy, person X has a vendetta against me, we need to get person Y. Right. Uh, you know, or uh, person you X should be executed. Or person yes. X should be hung by their toenails. Yeah. You come after me, I'm going to come after you. Those are threats that the court will not tolerate in the administration of justice. Now, we're at the Court of Appeals level. What's going to happen with this? Well, when a case is appealed, um, it really is a request from one side or another to ask the higher court or the next higher court to look at the decision that the lower court or the trial court made and to look at specific things that the trial court has done or specific decisions they have made. These are called assignments of error, meaning we believe that the court made a mistake or committed an error when they ruled in this particular way. And we're asking the appeals court to correct it by either telling the trial court they have to take back the order by taking it back yourself or giving instructions to the trial court and telling them exactly what they need to do in order to get it right. And that's not terribly uncommon. The appeals court um, has the ability to hear the appeal or the request in a couple different ways. They can assign a panel of appeals judges um, to hear the case, or they can also sit in what's called en banc, meaning all of the appeals judges on that entire court can sit and hear it so that maybe one group of judges that hear this case um, in ruling one way 
will not make a, a different decision than perhaps another set of judges would have made and thereby may be causing some kind of confusion. That's usually what happens when they sit, when all of them sit together, is they want to really kind of speak with one voice as to a particular issue. Now, Because nor- normally a court of appeals sits in a panel of three. Correct. Uh, and, and those three judges are picked at random. So they could be uh, Trump appointees. They could be Obama appointees. They could whatever. be Reagan appointees. Who knows? Exactly. Um, right. But they're right. randomly assigned to hear particular cases. And their decisions are fairly binding unless the appellate decision is appealed to yet a higher court. And so in this instance, again, I I don't know if the appeals court has decided how they will sit or how they will hear this particular appeal, but it wouldn't be um, surprising either way they decide it. But what they will do is they'll hear arguments from both sides as to why either the gag order should remain in place and be imposed and must be followed by the defendant, because in this case, particular case, because it's a criminal matter, former President Trump is considered a defendant as he would be considered, as anyone else would be considered a defendant in any other criminal case. And so um, in the civil case, we tend to refer to him as a party or a litigant because it's a different type of case in front of Judge Ingeron. But here he's considered a defendant. And so the Justice Department will argue to the Court of Appeals, why Judge Chetkin's order was appropriate, why it was very specific, very similar to Judge Ingeron's, why it's narrowly tailored or very specific, it's limiting. And like you said, it doesn't take away his right to talk, to make all the political speeches he wants and to talk about all of the politics he believes that has been invoked or is overshadowing this case. And meanwhile, you'll have defense counsel or attorneys for former President Trump on the other side of the room who will argue why the order is unreasonable and whether or not there are what are considered fundamental rights, like the right to free speech, that may be impacted or encroached upon or taken away from him by limiting him, his ability to speak, or even imposing this kind of order in in a criminal case at all. And both sides will argue very vehemently their specific positions and they're going to be trying to persuade the appellate court to see it their way. The appellate court will make a decision and they'll make sure that they communicate that decision to Judge Chutkin. So the people out there listening to us know the seriousness of, of this. This is obviously the first time that somebody running for president uh, has been under criminal indictment for interfering with the previous election. So so there are not just regular First Amendment rights here, but the, the rights to political speech, yes, uh, which are a little more liberal in what one can say in relationship to the truth than uh, than regular speech. You are absolutely and, correct, and, Tom. And in a democracy, that's what you need. That's what we have. And as you quoted Judge Chutkin earlier. One of the beautiful things that she wrote in her order, which I I still remember, is she wrote about the purpose and the importance of a fair trial. We want all defendants 
to have and not just believe or think, but to actually have the experience of a fair trial. But one thing she wrote was that a fair trial is owed to everyone in the room, including the other side, including the state. And sometimes if you have such a, a overwhelming and overpowering defendant with such a huge platform and stage, it's important to ensure that even their rights to free speech, which are not all inclusive and without any limitations because they are, you can't go into a crowded theater and scream fire when there is no fire. Right. Um, there are right. limits to free right. speech rights and there are even limits to um, political speech. But what she said is, hey, this is something that's owed to both sides. So my duty as a judge isn't just to making sure the defendant feels comfortable in the room and can say any and everything they want, but the state deserves a fair court and a fair playing field to try their case as well. Well, it's interesting because if you really break it down, she's saying you are a criminal to President Trump, former President Trump, you are a criminal defendant who happens to be running for president. And who happens to be he, a former president running again. He, right. He, his view is that I'm a presidential candidate and a former president who happens to be a criminal defendant. <laughs> Correct. That, that that's the, the that's the juxtaposition that we have in 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 a a simple uh, paragraph. Yes, and the perceived now, exceptionalism, you, right? <laughs> you, you you may think that this some of the people out there may think this is an easy issue on this gag order uh, of Judge Chuckins. It's not, uh, even as much as she's limited it. Uh, and you see strange bedfellows here because. People like or organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, they're filing written briefs on behalf of President Trump because of their stand on the First Amendment. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this this plays out. And, and you're absolutely right. Those briefs, even though, and some people might ask, well, wait a minute, how does that happen? Or why does the ACLU care? How do they get to be involved at all? And they don't have to be the, a defendant. They don't have to represent the defendant. They don't have to be part of the prosecution's team or represent them. They file what are called amicus briefs or friend of the court briefs because their belief is that the decisions in this case could have a sweeping effect on how the First Amendment is interpreted. And because they have a longstanding tradition of protecting the First Amendment rights of all of all litigants, um, no matter who you are, you may not like them and you may not like what they say, but what they are committed to is the First Amendment. And so, yes, even in instances like these, they will file a brief or they will file additional information for the asking the court to consider it because of what they're general or their global or overall position has been about what the heart of the issue is, which is the First Amendment rights that the former president enjoys, um, not just as a citizen, but also now as a political candidate. One of the things that the special prosecutor asked Judge Chuckin to do, and she refused, was to make the terms of her gag order 
a condition of release. In other words, a condition for bond. You know, people are arrested for crime, uh, for alleged crimes. They're put in jail sometimes. Uh, certainly, they go through a booking procedure, if nothing else. Uh, then they come to the court, and the court determines the conditions of their release. Uh, that could be posting a cash bond or a property bond or just signing their name uh, to something, but certain conditions of what you can and cannot do while your case is pending. Judge Chudkin said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make this condition of release. It's going to be standalone, gag order or not. Now, that's different than what Judge Scott McAfee young judge, is doing in Georgia in all of the indictments against uh, Trump and 18 other uh, defendants. In that case, he made an order that was a condition of release that the ex-president could not communicate with any of his co-defendants in the case or any potential witness about the facts of the case, and he cannot intimidate them or otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. And then he goes on to say examples of what would constitute intimidation or obstruction include any direct or indirect threats against co-defendants, witnesses, victims, the Fulton County community, or any property in the community, the agreement states, including any posts on social media or reposts of other user comments. Now, that's a long-winded paragraph, but what he's saying is you don't follow this. It's not a violation of a gag order. I could put you in jail as a because you violated a condition of release. That gets a little confusing, even for lawyers. Can you break that down for the average person out there? Well, Tom, it's very similar to what you've said and what we've talked about, which is the fact that judges have a lot of tools at their disposal to ensure that cases are tried fairly and they can use those tools within the confines of rules that judges still operate within, but they can use those tools in whatever manner or any combination of those tools in whatever manner they believe is necessary and effective to achieve that outcome of fairly administering the case, not just for the defendant, but for the state or any other party. For all parties. For all, all parties. parties. And so what you see here um, is the, again, the use or the ability to use these similar rules differently to choose a, to effectuate a certain outcome. For example, with Judge Chutkin, who said, no, I'm, I've already had the bond hearing. I've already set the terms and conditions of bond. And the issue of gagging the defendant came up after the fact. And so what he's perhaps looking at doing by his behavior may very well constitute a new separate or different criminal charge. And I'm going to let that play out and see where it goes 
if it actually gets there. Because again, I've got a lot of daylight between issuing the gag order and maybe even imposing a term of incarceration while the matter's pending or some other punishment that involves incarceration. And so it seems that that may have been at least part of Judge Chutkin's theory or um, her appreciation for why she chose not to make the gag order a condition on remaining released. And what I mean by release, for those who um, may be still wondering, when a defendant is charged with a particular crime, the court sets the terms or the conditions upon which they can continue to share the community with you and I while that case is still going on. And so those are called bond conditions or bail conditions. And if you abide by them, then you can remain in the public. You can go to work every day, maybe drop your kids off at school and pick up dinner on the way home. But if you violate them, then you can face having your bond or your bail revoked or taken back and you being placed in jail until the case begins and maybe even until it ends because you haven't abided by those rules. Now, Judge McAfee in Georgia, again, having access to some same or identical rules as and tools as Judge Chutkin, thought it important to outline conditions very early on on what it would mean to remain free and in the community while the case is pending in the state of Georgia. And there may have been very different uh, concerns that he took a look at when he made those decisions, but very similar to Judge Chutkin, you know, he outlined that there would be no tolerance for intimidating witnesses or um, making statements that could be perceived as intimidation. But unlike Judge Chutkin, Judge McAfee said, I'm going to make your adherence to these rules. Are you following these rules? A condition on whether or not you actually get to jet set and go and come as you please or, you know, be wherever you want to be or even be able to, to have the liberty to come to court um, on the days when hearings are set as opposed to being brought in by the police. Because these are the conditions and this is how I'm going to use this tool that the court has been given in order to ensure a, you get a fair trial and the state gets a fair trial, but that there's not going to be, I'm lessening the likelihood that you are going to be accused of a new crime as well, because intimidating witnesses is a new crime. And one of the conditions across the board is that you commit no new crimes. And so I'm going to help you by making sure that I put conditions in place that help to ensure you don't commit new crimes by saying, if you do, then I'm going to tell you right now, you can't stay out and stay a free person if you commit new crimes. And that's exactly, that shows just how two different judges in two different jurisdictions handling criminal cases that are very different though, um, are using similar tools to help control the behavior, if you will, of one per particular person. We're not forgetting about the uh, federal documents case, the secret documents case in, in Florida with federal judge Eileen Cannon, uh, but uh, we're going to talk about that another day because that involves secret documents, top secret documents, confidential documents. It, it is a real swamp <laughs> to get in, in, into that. And I, I don't want to, to, to mess up our, what I hope is our clarity of our, our, our messages 
uh, today. So we'll get to Judge uh, Cannon's uh, case uh, at, at a later time. Judge, since uh, you've been uh, retired, uh, you've been working as a, a legal analyst, but you've also had some time to to look at some for some humor <laughs> in the court system. You you and I, uh, if people listen to us, they think, "Oh my God, this is the most serious place in in the entire world," and for the most part, it is. But occasionally. Uh, there's a chuckle or two. Uh, have you found anything that you'd like to share with us as we end I this? I did. And and you're right. I've um, In this downtime of retirement, I get a chance to kind of scour some things. And I ran across a little brief nugget of something, especially since we're talking about criminal cases here, that kind of left me um, laughing a little bit. And so this story came from an attorney who was talking about um, an experience um, that they were actually sitting in on during court. And so the defendant who um, was identified as a local gang boss um, was on the witness stand. And so the question to him on cross-examination began with an open-ended one. He, he says, you stated that you are not and have never been in a gang. And to what the defendant says, that's correct. And so the prosecutor says, well, do you have any tattoos? And the defendant says, yeah. <laughs> I have a tiger on my calf and one on my chest that says GD for life. And so the prosecutor says, well, what does GD stand for? To which the defendant responds, gangster disciples. <laughs> and the prosecutor says, no further questions. <laughs> that's, that's one when you know when to quit. Right. You know when to leave the stage and leave something <laughs> like that hanging. Absolutely. Judge, as always, thank you so much for talking with us. And, and for listeners out there, uh, we're going to do this periodically. The judge and I are going to get together and, and try to break down some of this uh, for you. Uh, and we thought gag orders was a, a, a good place to start since they seem to be front and center and probably will be over the next uh, several months. So, again, Judge, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. This has been fun and I hope very informative for our audience. Today, we've been talking to retired judge and legal analyst, Judge Gail Williams Byers, about gag orders and other legal proceedings. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, or if you have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone. <laughs>